I'm not an economic professor. If you get $800 a week unemployment benefits and you live with a partner who also is getting $800 a week unemployment benefits, $1,600 a week, Laura, $83,000 a year for that household in unemployment benefits. The median income in America is only $63,000. We're incentivizing people to stay home. What if we gave that additional unemployment benefits to employers to incentivize people to go to work? Well, what if, what if we just cut off the unemployment? I mean, hunger is a, it, hunger is a pretty powerful thing. I don't mean physical hunger because people who truly in, are in need need help. I'm talking about people who can work but refuse to work. But the government is is literally putting anvils in many ways on people's shoulders, either through the mandates, regulations, and now through free money, which obviously we're all going to, the piper eventually has to be paid. Uh, John, yeah. John, I want to ask you, though, about this, this idea of work-life balance. Because, look, no one wants to miss their kids growing up. No one wants to, you, know, you stay in the office your whole life, you, you, you never see your ch- family. So I, that's really important. However, have we taken that a step too far when you think of, well, a lot of the millennials talking about, well, I need time for self-care. I don't know why I'm harping on that tonight, but the whole self-care movement is a little, I mean, my mother is not with us anymore, but she worked by the time she was 12 during the Depression. If she heard the self-care thing, I think her head would explode. <laughs> you know, I think that's right. Old I school. have a friend in the military who trains military dogs, Laura, and they only feed a military dog at night because a hungry dog is an obedient dog. Well, if we're not causing people to be hungry to work, that, then we're providing them with all the meals they need sitting at home. I'm completely with you, Laura. These benefits make absolutely no sense to us. And on top of the impact of not getting employees and not being able to run our businesses, in my industry, we have meat prices are up 10 percent. Chicken prices are up 15 percent. Inflation is killing, is killing, is going to kill business. I mean, it's going to, that's the the next shoe to drop. Inflation is going to kill business. You heard it here first, (laughs) folks. I'm Matt Leck. Left Reckoning 60. Big Pharma's pocketbook politician and Applebee's indicates Marks. With me as always, David Kristen. Hello, David. Hey, man. How are you doing? That is something else. I forgot that uh, Laura Ingram, you know, supposed to be the, the grand defender of uh, family values is out there harping <laughs> against being able to spend any times with your kids uh, so that you spend the rest of your life serving a capitalist in their bottom line. <laughs> Jesus yeah, Christ. It turns out all that is a thin veneer for the things that you're you uh, cannot say, but that drive society, a society ruled by capitalists. Uh, yeah, so we had to put the um, the Taffer clip in the cold open because it's really the theme for tonight. Mm-hmm. We have a few bits of basically prime leftist media uh, sort of content that hit the uh, hit the propaganda mill. And I think we need to – we're going to give it to you folks. There's two things. One is this Applebee's email and another is a uh, 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 union buster. Basically uh, meets a well-prepared, newly unionized workforce and uh, great audio of that. And I think like this is the sort of thing that uh, you know we're not really – I don't know. Maybe we'll devote the latter forty-five minutes to uh, what happened at the Oscars. But this uh, <laughs> this is the sort of bread and butter that I feel like. Look, we have um, 
this new possibilities with the internet and communications technology that we like to that likes to get sold to us as going to be revolutionary. Let's try to actually put some of the um, the some uh, revolutionary fuel in there, which is it starts with a tweet here. And uh, I saw this. Well, it starts with an email, actually. Mm-hmm. But uh, this, first, this tweet here <laughs> um, put out by uh, uh, Rob Gill. Uh, Wayne Pag- Pankratz. Uh, I mean, very Dickensian name. Sorry, Wayne. Uh, but, uh, you know, you've really, you, you, you've really uh, earned this one. Uh, Wayne Pankratz of Applebee's says that higher gas prices are great for business because most employees live check to check and hopefully they can start lowering wages now. Let's just look at a little bit of this email. Or should we? Should, how should we get into this? Should we go through the email first and show how it was received? Or well, I mean, like we could talk about how it's received. We're going to read a bit from the email in just a second. Um, yeah. But as Matt was probably going to note, uh, the thing that's really notable about this email is that the rest of the thread from everyone else who received it, it wasn't condemnation. It was celebration of of the brilliant logic uh, coming from Wayne. Yeah, that's what I want to say. Is so there's the gr- a great Vice News uh, write up. An atrocious email caused a mass resignation at Applebee's. But uh, if we just look at and which is true, like and it was it did cause a mass resignation and it is atrocious set. But that glosses over the fact that uh, when you look at how it actually was received by some of the people on the email chain, uh, I mean the first thing you'll see is um, great message, sir. <laughs> Which Jesus Christ! I mean, goodness gracious! And then uh, at the very, oh, at the very top, words of wisdom from Wayne, and I, my eyes are deceiving me. That's either three or four exclamation points. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, uh, and I'll just read the bottom part of that before we get into a little bit more. But it starts off the email from Wayne, uh, who's since been fired for saying. Um, <laughs> What he shouldn't have said in writing, what should have, what something that should have been left for the afterwork cocktails. Uh, uh, team, everyone has heard that gas prices continue to rise. The advantage this has for us is that it will increase application flow and has the potential to lower our average wage. How you ask? Now, as a leftist, David, your ears must be uh, burning at that sort of phrase. No, I mean it's 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 pretty tremendous. I mean, if we can pull up uh, those those slides here from the email, um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what happened here, and then show how this really vindicates um, a lot of of the writings of that kind of curmudgeonly old uh, communist Karl Marx. Um, but you know, before we get there, I just want to note a couple things, just because the spin machine is is running really quickly. You know, this is not just like one local manager of like a small town Applebee's. This is somebody who's an executive in a company that manages in the realm in the neighborhood of around 30 to 40 Applebee's. So this is not mm. some kind of small potato um, guy. Um, this is somebody who is very, very deeply enmeshed in kind of capitalist thinking and thinking about peoples as a, you know, as a kind of means to profit from instead of the human beings um, um, that they are. And rightfully, like most people in the public have been completely outraged. Uh, but I think getting into the actual logic that he lays out here is pretty interesting. Um, So this is the first bit from the email here. Uh, Most of our employee base and potential employee base, this is a very important phrase. We'll get there later. Mm. um, Lives paycheck to paycheck. Any increase in gas prices cuts into their disposable income. As inflation continues to climb and gas prices continue to go up, that means more hours uh, employees will need to work to maintain their current level of living. 
if we can just uh, keep these going. Um, yeah. You know, he's got a. Um, <laughs> You know, this is somebody who very much is is reacting, uh, you know, to potentially higher miseration of, of of working people. And you should want to condemn it, but we have to understand what's going on here. Um, we all competed to hire out the limited applicant pool, and there was a wage war. He wrote, "We all saw businesses hiring team members at eighteen to twenty dollars an hour. They will no longer be able to afford to do this." And again, we'll get back to these threads um, later in the show in this in this segment, but. Um, you know, this is really important too. how like these big firms are able to sort of use their power and, uh, you know, undermine these, uh, you know, these smaller mom and pop businesses. And this is an excerpt for the last bit is what is to be done section. Uh, what can you do uh, besides hiring employees in at a lower wage to decrease our labor when able? Make sure you have a pulse on the morale of your employees. Many will need to work more hours or get a second job. Um one, um, you know, it's extremely cynical uh, to hit at that, basically saying that I think people's lives are going to get worse. So we're going to cut their wages and expect them to work longer hours. Um, but two, that kind of, you know, new age American, uh, you know, false sweetness that you get from the boss class these days where, yeah, I'm going to screw these people over. But you know what? I'm going to be very, very sympathetic uh, to their everyday struggle. I mean, yeah, that's. That that goes back a long way of like condescending to actually think about caring when pe- people are really just um, something you want to out you know, take from. <laughs> like, uh, no, for sure. Half and your like, workforce is so easier exploited one. And and luckily, and you know, it's very, a very good story in the sense that uh, the people who he was directly talking about uh, revolted to this, um, as is laid out in this vice piece. Um, there were mass resignations at a lot of the locations uh, that this guy, um, you know, is, is supervising. Um, one of the people, uh, Holcomb, uh, who's 23 years old, noted that he gave everyone in the restaurant their food for free. Uh, we didn't even close the store. And then Holcomb, along with other people, left um, and, and quit their job at Applebee's. Um, he also, rightfully so, printed out this email and distributed it uh, to other employees and to patrons of the Applebee's location that he was at. Um, four out of six of, um, four out of six managers and at least 10 other workers, uh, quit on the spot or handed in their notices, um, after this happened. And now this is the important bit because Applebee's the, the corporation, um, you know, which is set up like a lot of these kind of, you know, big chains are set up as a franchising model. They have distanced themselves from these comments saying, um, you know, that these do not represent the value of, of Applebee's. But I think it's really notable and important to remember that rather than Wayne's comments being a kind of deviation, um, he just said the quiet part out loud that yeah. their profit margin relies on the immiseration of, of working people. Yeah, I mean, this is like what uh, the, all the emphasis of opportunity overshadows, which is the coercion of all of this, the coercion that you cannot sustain yourself unless you are serving a capitalist in one way or the other. And in all of the time that capitalists have had full reign of say like, um, uh, or for like rule, let's put mm-hmm. over like workers, like let's say since like the civil war, for instance, when they took over part of the mantle from plantation owners, they have not developed anything that allows them to make this work that isn't brutality. So like when you go to a restaurant like Applebee's, which I enjoy like that sort of uh, food, I'll be honest. I like that level chilies, <laughs> anything that level, Ruby Tuesdays, whatever. The problem is 
you realize that part of that, like, like subsidizing that like meal that you're having a pretty decent, uh, okay price on is Mm -hmm. the the basically like despair of the workforce and the potential workforce. And that like, and that's not, that doesn't taste so good. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, for every $1 Long Island iced tea that you can get there, um, you know, those are wages being directly pulled out of the pockets of, of, of working people. Um, (laughs) I, I wanted to, um, you know, take the moment because obviously this is despicable and, and there's been, you know, pretty significant public outrage. I mean, you know, you can go on your local news channels at this point and they're talking about this, this episode. Um, but I wanted to take a moment to, to, to really break down how this reveals some of the fundamental tensions within capitalism and why, you know, you have to go beyond just saying that like you want a nicer, uh, version of, of this system but that you actually want to move into a system that works for working people instead of just for the profit margins of, of these big corporations. Um, and I want to look toward toward Marx because Marx wrote about this a very, very long time ago, uh, this concept, that taffer, that this guy Applebee's, that your boss, that all these people who profit off of other people's labor understand very, very well. And that concept is the reserve army of labor, uh, which is a very critical um, part of, of the capitalist system. You know, one of the arguments that you get from people who support this current system is that the share of income that goes to workers will stay stable. In other words, when the economy does well, we all do well. You don't need to have spent too much time, you know, pouring through the data to understand that that's not the case. Why is that? Um, you know, there, there are the direct tensions between you and your boss on the shop floor, but there's an entire social level that plays into this dynamic. In fact, not only does capitalism not divvy out the profits fairly, it creates the conditions of immiseration. This is one of the key points that Marx makes. It happens especially very, very early on as capitalism is spreading throughout um, a society or, or a country where you take people who once were able to get water or cut down trees to you know, fuel their homes. The introduction of private property makes things that people could physically do, makes the, the natural resources that are around them inaccessible to them. It actually creates immiseration. And it's not just an accident. It is actually a key part of this engine. Um, and it's also it's important business to model. Too. Yeah, no, it's the bit. I mean, it's, it's, it is the business model, right? As you can see here. I mean, he's laying out very clearly. And I also just want to note too that while like that email is absolutely morally odious, while what John Taffer is saying is morally odious, and we should condemn them for that as people. Um, but you have to remember that like the reason they think that way is because this is a key part of the system that they profit from and engage in, right? Um, yeah. I don't think that you should spare you know, your anger to these people on a personal level. Um, but I also think it's really important that, you know, you don't delude yourself into thinking that like, oh, um, you know, if only we had the nice boss instead of the mean guy, if we had the, you know, if we had Sam instead of Wayne, right, it would be, it yeah. would be better. That's not the case. Um, <laughs> this, this incident really was that this guy was just stupid enough to put it all out in an email that somehow yeah. got linked, leaked. Um, so for capitalism to function, uh, it needs to create an immiserated class that will compete with those on the job floor, right? I've told this story before. I know Matt's probably experienced this. Pretty much anyone who's worked in, in most retail, low-wage retail, uh, low-wage service industry jobs, you've had the same conversation before. I remember complaining once to a boss at, at a restaurant I worked at, um, and they walked me into their office and they showed me a big stack of resumes, 
and told me quite bluntly that if I have a problem, they have plenty of other people that they can uh, bring in who have no problem uh, working this job. And that is a fundamental reality of capitalism is that this co- this constant threat of losing your position and this fear that there is, you know, 10 people ready to fill in for you, this kind of created disposability of, of labor is key in labor discipline on the shop floor, um, as is uh, this system because it creates scarcity of opportunity to work for people, right? Capitalists, you think they would want everybody to be working all the time, right? Uh, that's not the case. The thing that capitalists fear more than anything in this country is what's called full employment or approaching full employment, where people are able to leave a job and get another job down the road, you know, the next day. And they have worked tirelessly, tirelessly in this country uh, to create a dynamic where that is not the case because they like to have people who are scared of losing uh, access to income, right? Marx calls yeah. this the reserve army of, of labor, right? And a couple of things before we get into, we'll, we'll go to capital actually and break some of this down in more depth, but like it's really important to understand that in the current context too, that the reserve army of labor necessitates these social programs that Taffer was complaining about in the cold open, right? When John Taffer says, all these people are getting unemployment at home, they don't want to work. Um, well, that is an outgrowth of the needs of the capitalist class, like mm-hmm. um, of, of the needs of the capitalist class to make sure that there is some level of bare necessity that's meant so, you know, so people don't just, you know, starve when they're unemployed. You need to maintain, um, you know, them living. And you do that um, by making sure that they're living, you know, the worst quality of life um, as possible, which is why Taffer and all these conservatives and pro-business uh, politicians fight tooth and nail against the, the welfare system. But it is something that is actually necessary for the system to reproduce itself so that when people fall out of the labor force, um, you know, they, they, they don't die, um, but they are miserated enough that they will take uh, pretty much any opportunity that is given to them. Um, yeah. Entire industries, especially service, rely on that kind of immiseration. And it's also important to note, too, that the reserve, the like the level of people who are in this reserve army, it changes over time. Um, and when that army is smaller, that is typically times when you see things like increased wages, when you see people getting concessions from their bosses, which is why we're seeing this extreme backlash from the capitalist uh, class today, right? And a lot of that happened because to get through to make sure that capitalism didn't crumble during the coronavirus pandemic, um, you know, the American state got very involved and gave people unemployment and gave people stimulus checks. It was not anywhere near enough, um, but it was enough that especially people on those, you know, on working those kind of low wage jobs were more and more confident to start to demand more from, from their bosses, uh, which is why, as we saw in the email, they were complaining about how they had to increase uh, their wages during that period of time. Right. Um, so yeah, stimulus helped a lot of people leave their jobs or demand better pay at their jobs. Um, but with that now drawing up, uh, this capitalist class is really celebrating the return of their ability to be absolute tyrants. Yeah, and that's why you hear when you hear these articles like the average American doesn't have four hundred dollars in case of an emergency. That is the capitalist mm-hmm. class uh, congratulating themselves on a job well done, uh, and uh, the reason that they donate so much to politicians and have them gum up um, things like further COVID assistance, um, say let's slice off that uh, six hundred dollars from the two thousand dollars, or do uh, or not you know extend health care in the pandemic. Uh, is because of that that reason they want to maintain that sort of um, cudgel of 
deprivation <laughs> that forces you to fucking go serve French fries. Let's put up this 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 first quote, if you could, um, from Capital, because I just want to make, make this explicit, right? <laughs> what this guy, Wayne, is saying, and much less eloquently, is literally what Marx writes about in Capital, um, Volume 1. Uh, so this first um, quote right here just lays it out quite clearly. It is the absolute interest of every capitalist to press a given quantity of labor out of a smaller rather than a greater number of laborers. If the cost is about the same, the later had bred it at its uh, the latter had bred it at its own cost. And what he's saying there is exactly what Wayne is saying in that email when um, when Wayne notes. Uh, that, uh, you know, they were having to pay people 18 to $20 an hour. But now because, um, you know, stimulus is drying up because there's inflation and because most importantly, gas has gone through the roof, um, prices have gone through the roof. They now feel more and more confident in their ability to actually lower people's wages while also because people are getting paid less, have them work more hours, right? He's expli- he says this explicitly. We're going to pay people less and have them work more. Well, so at the end of the day, what is that relationship on a financial level for the capitalists? They're coming out on top, right? They're getting more labor out of somebody for less money. Um, and that is them recognizing the situation uh, with the reserve uh, army of, of labor sort of growing because more and more people are being sort of cast off into these kind of desperate situations that they can now use that to their advantage. And now we have this longer quote, um, and it's a bit dense, but we'll break it down, trust us, um, because this really explains the internal dynamic of capitalism and why you can't just expect nice people to develop out of the system and why you have to push past it. This is, again, from Capital Volume 1. Uh, the overwork of the employed part of the working class swells the ranks of the reserve, whilst conversely, the greater pressure that the latter, by its competition, exerts on the former, forces them to submit to overwork and to subjugation under the dictates of capital. The condemnation of one part of the working class to enforce idleness by the overwork of the other and the converse becomes a means of enriching the individual capitalists and accelerates at the same time the production of the industrial reserve on a scale corresponding with the advance of social accumulation. So what does that mean here? Uh, The first bit, what Marx is saying, is that when you have a small group of people who are working and their their hours are increased by their capitalist, um, you know, by by their boss. Um, their hours are increasing, which means that there is less work time available for other people, right? Um, and that creates a situation which sort of is a puzzle, right? If you think about it, like just purely logically, why is it that some people are being forced to work 50, 60 hours a week while other people are struggling to even find a position themselves, right? And it doesn't make um, a lot of sense unless you understand that for the capitalist, it really works out in their favor because they're paying somebody less um, to to work more. They're replacing their kind of wage, um, the, their wage level that they have to pay um, for the profits that are, are produced by, by the working people, while also creating a very hungry and immiserated class of people who are willing, willing at the first moment to fill in or step in for anybody who sort of gets pu- pushed out of employment. Um, the last bit of, of that, 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 um, that quote, the condemnation of one part of the working class to enforced idleness. And this is the, this is where Marx is so uh, great because he's explicit, right? This isn't a natural law. This is enforced. This is a human choice um, to enforce idleness 
on people. This is another example of how capitalism is not really a system um, that really allocates labor and human potential well, because it creates idleness. It's not that people are lazy, it's that this system actually creates conditions that make idleness of a vast majority of people in this country, a large amount of people in this country, necessary to underlie uh, the profits of capitalists, right? And this is not just um, limited to labor um, directly, right? This is also when you think about organizations like OPEC, the oil industry, right? We don't have a problem when it comes to oil right now of there not being enough on the planet to go into your vehicle, right? You know, drop the climate change stuff for a second. Just understand this is the dynamic and the, the contradiction of capital, you have a condition where the people who own those things want to make a resource that is not really scarce, scarce so that they can charge more money for it, right? That is them trying um, to push back against a, a, a term that Marx uses um, called overproduction, right? When you produce so much of a thing that the price falls dramatically on it, right? And so much of capitalism is not about creating abundance, right? Um, it's actually about limiting our productive capacity so that they can sit on their fiefdoms. And they do the exact kind of the same thing uh, when it comes to labor, right? This is enforced um, you know, scarcity of hours. This is enforced low wages for people. And the idleness that you see uh, when, when people are unable to find work is enforced for the bottom line of capitalists. So it's just like whenever you hear a conservative or what's the refrain now, like nobody wants to work anymore, you remind them that that is not a, a personal moral failing of people, but a systemic um, problem that is created to benefit the few at the very, very top of the system. Yeah, if their uh, compensation corresponded to like how much work they actually do, maybe we show some of these people sending around emails about how uh, higher uh, gas prices might actually be good for the uh, application flow. Uh, maybe they should go like uh, clean some restaurants and uh, get off their ass and go do some work in those restaurants to help short short staffed places. Um, but no, of course they like they've graduated above that level and now they just get to like you know idly talk about how um, people going hungry is going to be going to get in like t ten more applications that week. And I mean, I just wanted to note, um, you know, sort of in closing that it's really great. Um, that people stood up as they should. And like one of yes. the things that like, you know, I'm a, not to get sappy, but like I'm always really moved by people who have the bravery to like stand up against this, this broken system, even at like, you know, personal risk. Right. So it's great that people stood up and they refused to be treated in this manner. But, you know, we have to remember systematically that like until we break this system, those folks who left, they're just moving into the hands of another corporation that's using the exact same logic, yeah. right? What Wayne Packrat <laughs> um, wrote is unbelievably immoral. Um, you know, he's celebrating these difficult times that people are facing, but it's not just a personal moral failing along with like a really fucking stupid thing to write out. Um, he's operating in the system that rewards that kind of cruel logic. And the job of socialists is, is not just to condemn the effects of capitalism, but to argue for a system that does not rely on this kind of exploitation of workers and the miseration of entire classes of people to create a reserve yeah. army of labor to be used to pit against us. I mean, that's the cruel thing of the reserve army of labor is that it's trying to pit the working class. You know, we are natural allies with one another against each other. Right. And that's the real trick of this all. Um, you know, but socials, we need to be arguing for a social order that works to the benefits of working people 
instead of the fucking bottom line of asshole capitalists like Wayne Packrats and the rest of the, uh, um, you know, the people who kept their jobs and are still management and the Applebee's corporation that are all just trying to wipe their hands clean of this thing, saying that, like, great wisdom, sir. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, that's the thing is like, I want more leaks like this and God bless any manager who would get BCC'd on something like that. Like, Oh man, that's a great way. I mean, just save it. Even if you're not ready to do it now, uh, but you, if you're privy to information like that, like that, that's a historical document um, that we need to be saving. I think, um, and we have another one of those if we're ready yeah. to move on to this. Yeah, yeah. So some Google Fiber uh, uh, employees actually is for a contractor named BDS. Um, uh, <laughs> no relation to the um, boycott divest sanction. Um, voted to uh, unionize in Kansas City, a uh, nine-to-one vote uh, to join the Alphabet Workers Union, uh, which is part of the Communication Workers of America. Uh, and they also got, uh, well, Google's participating in some union busting, uh, it turns out, if you can believe it. Uh, and uh, and so they followed a certain script that the uh, union was prepared for. And this great little compilation of... Uh, uh, put together by the union and put out on Twitter. I wanted to uh, share with folks here. Um, there's a few things they're really prepared for. One, the um, the third party of the union saying, like, you want other people to come, another outside agency to come in here, and uh, mm. uh, and also the implication that uh, that their jobs will go away if they uh, continue down this road, which uh, uh, shouldn't be allowed. And uh, well, here we can just enjoy this together. You know, like I said, the purpose of my visit out here is purely informational. If, when we get to the vote, whichever way you vote, like, we're still working together regardless of how it goes afterwards. Like, yeah, that's already been decided. Yeah, we, we've already all decided that we want a union. I, we wouldn't have signed cards if we weren't informed. So what folks sometimes will tell you that there's three parties involved. There's the employees. That's one party. One party is the company, management. Right, and the other party is the union, which you can choose to have represent you or not. We are the union. Yeah, we are the union. I mean, we don't need the election. You guys could just recognize the union. That's that's you're you're absolutely correct. So in a, in the world of what we'll call third party vendors, your company can decide it's no longer a value proposition for them to work in there. Right, and they could say we're not going to do Google Fiber anymore. Right. As an are, so, are, are you, you willing to put that in writing? Yeah. Are you saying that, that if we unionize, we're going to close? No, not at all. It sounds no, like you're insinuating. Yeah. See, I don't know how. I don't know how you heard that. Right. <laughs> 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 I I heard it. I, I, I heard it. Yeah. I, yeah. If you unionize, like it's perfectly within the rights of the client, not BDS, to say, well, we're going to go look for another vendor. Right. We. But it is illegal to threaten. I'm not threatening anybody. That wasn't a threat. If you perceive that as a threat, I'm just making sure you're aware. No, and I and I understand that. So, so what we're asking (laughs) for here is why we, as a collective group, decided to go through this process, is so that those decisions aren't being made above our heads. This this negotiation will happen whether we're talking to to Google or whether you guys are talking to Google. Bottom line, we would like. Have more of our input here from the bottom line. If we have to employ representation, we will. I mean, that's why we're all sitting here wearing red meat. 
We love the product. We, we love our jobs. Helping people. We, we like helping people, that sort of thing. We are, we're excited for our election. We're excited to be formally recognized. And um, you know, we appreciate you guys this time. I mean, I just love how sort of ready they are to jump down the guy's throat. Like, I mean, not that they're, they voted nine to one. So it's not like there was, you know, people who needed to like see the power of it, but like, what a, what a message that sends that like, they're ready for basically each uh, card he's going to play and like, Oh no, I wasn't implied that when I mentioned that uh, hypothetical about a business decision. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I also love the, the first bit too, where they said we are the union. <laughs> Yeah, uh, when they were trying to make it seem like the union is an outside party, which is like the the first thing that these guys go to is make it seem like you know the union is some kind of far off outside um, actor. So I mean, I will just say like you know if if God could bless us with as many <laughs> incompetent union busters like that, yes, we'd be better off. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Like I feel like that they're just like they've been out of practice, maybe because we're at low levels of unionization historically. That like these guys are just like they're dusting off scripts from like the sixties, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and that like like sort of like nuclear fallout from atomic testing back then still on them, and uh, they're like, oh, I guess I can say this, sure, and like just hired him from Central Casting and going like, bro. What people will say is this. It's it's always interesting, like that. At, when they throw in phrases like "at the end of the day" or, or mm-hmm. things like that, like it's like because I you realize that if you watch like reality TV, the way people try to fill up time when they are saying nothing uh, or trying to get around like what they're actually uh, without explicitly saying what their intentions are, very interesting. Uh, so yeah, I hope that union busters do not get any more skilled than that. Uh, yeah. For sure. And, uh, you know, we'll be watching very closely. Uh, they're counting votes in Bessemer, uh, Alabama right now at the Amazon facility. Uh, we'll be watching that closely. And also we've seen more uh, victories for the Starbucks uh, Workers United uh, since our show last week. So uh-huh. things are moving in the right direction. And, uh, you know, even having all of these stories to be able to cover, um, I, I think, just shows that, uh, you know, there there's momentum in in, uh, in a movement that, that very, very much um, you know, benefits from that and it benefits all of us. So hell yeah, man. I mean, it's exciting to see um, and be able to talk about these things instead of as a kind of abstract. Uh, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, uh, we have a fun, uh, we'll just plug the uh, Sunday yeah. show for folks. Patreon.com says left reckoning. My buddy Chris Leal ran for state, uh, a state house seat in Dallas uh, as a, a sort of labor Democrat, uh, sort of trying to bring back the old progressive, uh, 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 tradition there. Um, and uh, we'll talk to him about how that went and also his perspective. He's a teacher down in Dallas now about how these sorts of these issues, the, um, the LGBT stuff, but also, um, uh, earlier the anti CRT stuff, they work both as sort of like an identity, um, uh, race or anti gay baiting sort of, um, uh, you know, base red meat, but also as an attack on public schools and a way to try to attack public teachers. Uh, so we'll talk about that stuff with Chris. Patreon.com slash Left Reckoning uh, to get access to those uh, Sunday shows. And also, y'all, um, we're about 100 away from a 20K here on the YouTube channel. So if you're watching on YouTube, please hit that subscribe uh, button. Oh, yeah. Wonderful if we could hit that uh, 20,000 mark by the end of the week. Yeah, you want to be in that first 20K, folks. It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, that's the elite. That's, that's the, the elite, the, uh, yeah. <laughs> 
That's the um, that's the elite tier for sure. And also, um, don't forget to join us in the post game. You can get access to patreon.com slash left reckoning. Matt and I are taking voicemails. You'll get access to that phone number uh, once you sign up. Uh, Matt and I are going to be taking a pretty interesting uh, look at these two, what, nutrition podcaster bro kind of guys. Yeah, I mean, paleo bros. Paleo bros um, who are bringing back something else uh, extinct or maybe not as extinct as we would like, uh, but 19th century racist anthropology. Um, oh, so God. we'll be taking a, a little walk through their uh, their recent uh, uh, trip to Africa. Um, you won't want to miss that. Far. Honestly, it's like it's instead of like the like Teddy Roosevelt style safari outfit, um, where it's, like, it's now just like Patagonia um, and like um, sort of uh, sandals, but it's the same thing. Um, uh, all right, folks, we're going to get to our interview with uh, Andrew Perez and uh, we'll see you on the other side of this. Welcome back, Left Reckoners. I'm Matt Leck. With me, as always, David Griscom. How's it going, Matt? It's going well. And joining us this evening, we are happy to be joined by Andrew Perez. He's a senior editor and reporter at The Lever, covering money and influence. I know it's going to be wants to say The Lever, but uh, welcome, Andrew. Thank you. And tell us, what is The Lever? Uh, because uh, uh, And what happened to the Daily Poster that we've all came to a known love because I just want to say actually before I let Andrew go is if you watch a lot of this stuff on YouTube um, none of this ecosystem could exist without the type of work that they do at the Daily Poster turned the lever is this sort of like the actual intelligence that people are using to uh, you know opine on stuff so this stuff is extremely valuable and if you can you should support it um, at levernews.com so Andrew what is the lever Thank you. Um, so The Lever is a reader-funded uh, investigative news site, um, and we cover uh, money and influence and, uh, you know, money and influence uh, on policy. Um, so like on healthcare, uh, climate. Um, yeah, and we're trying to, you know, produce original, all original reporting uh, for, for readers. And this is the stuff I think that really, um, if you're kicking out for a bunch of different uh, opinion shows, uh, I think you should go to the actual source a little bit too. So I just would, would plug that. So let's uh, dive in here, Andrew. You have a number of stories we're going to talk about. Let's start with this uh, this one here. Pharma group, uh, oh, Pharma group to cinema, we've got your back. Uh, this is from February. Um, and... You know, I think what I like about the Daily Poster and people might be certain people might be relieved to hear is they go at both Democrats and Republicans, of course, uh, and particularly you know, cinema um, uh, and mansion. Um, but uh, let's uh, so there's an ad here that I think we all need to watch um, and uh, it might give us something make us feel a little bit something that we might not have felt about Kirsten Cinema before. Arizonans are tough and independent, just like Kirsten Cinema. Every day, she fights to improve the lives of working families while protecting our pocketbooks. Like leading on the bipartisan infrastructure bill that controls costs, rebuilds our roads, and grows the Arizona economy with good jobs. Working tirelessly until the job is done right, just like we do here in Arizona. Thank Kirsten Cinema and tell her keep fighting. We have your back, just like you've always had ours. Now, 
So I just just to one point out one thing about that is fighting for the bipartisan infrastructure bill, but also uh, uh, j- blocking the real infrastructure bill that we uh, actually needed. And Joe Biden ran on the Build Back Better, so that's just one thing to know. But who is center forward, and uh, why are they running this ad? So center forward is effectively like what used to be called like the blue dog coalition. Um, mm. but it's no longer just like a democratic organization. It's, it's bipartisan or nonpartisan. Anyway, they, they, you know, they, they ostensibly support centrist politicians. Um, but you know, if you do even just kind of like cursory research into them, you find that like, you know, they are funded by pharma, like uh, big pharma, the the main kind of lobbying group for them for for the drug industry in DC. And, um, you know, they, they're accounting for at least like a quarter of, of Center Forward's revenue over the over the last few years. Um, and then, you know, th- their board is also made up of a whole bunch of corporate lobbyists, including at least at least a handful who are working for, um, for pharma and also a, a series of other drug companies. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the context, you know, here is, yeah, as, as you were mentioning, cinema helped stall the kind of Biden agenda bill, the, the Build Back Better bill, which um, includes uh, like measures to reduce prescription drug prices by allowing Medicare to, to actually negotiate them, right? Like the government 20, 20 something years ago banned Medicare from negotiating drug prices. This, this bill would, would allow it allow Medicare to start doing that. And cinema for most of uh, like last year, like over the summer spent uh, was, was sort of leading the charge to defang that, that measure to, to reduce um, its punch, like in specifically kind of how much it would take away from pharma, like, um, like how many drugs you can negotiate. Um, you know, so it's, it's been watered down considerably, but you know, even, even if it were to pass, it's still, um, you know, re- would represent the first time that, that Medicare would be be allowed to negotiate drug prices. I mean, it's, it's truly uh, cynical to say that, you know, cinema's out there looking out for your pocketbooks when many, many people in Arizona uh, very much are struggling uh, to, to meet the ridiculous obligation uh, to pay off their, their pharmaceutical bills at the end of the month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it, it is it is definitely pretty absurd and like the we the we have your back line is like it felt for me like like i was just like no way i can't believe they're saying this right like you know i guess they're sort of framing it as if they're a you know sort of group of people who are in arizona but that is that is not the case <laughs> center forward is a is a basically a corporate front group uh that is registered in a Northern Virginia lobbyists, McMansion and like McLean. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Like that's its official address. <laughs> when you look up their like ad buys, like it's, it's, it's just really, really obscene. And you know, that's, that sort of phraseology is interesting in an ad like that, because there's also the, the, the look after your pocketbook, like David said, which, you know, it, it, directly after you mentioned that you love working people or whatever that, that hits one way, but also it reads another way to like giant corporate donors probably. And, yeah. and folks like that. I'm curious, like, yeah, like cinema, um, these centrist or corporatists, like uh, I got to imagine like the, this sort of, makeup of the Senate's been really good for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Center forward has run some ads. Well, what's funny is she's the kind of 
only person we've seen them running ads supporting. They they, they had a very light pressure campaign on Joe Manchin, um, but yeah, they they they've been supporting cinema um, for like several months now. They've they've run a whole bunch of ad campaigns. They've sent direct mail pieces. Um, and then they've, they've done some lighter advocacy for a few of the kind of pharma dems in the house who, who kind of worked with, uh, cinema to, to gut that measure. But cinema has been their sort of pride and joy, like from an advertising standpoint. Could you talk a little bit about, I mean, cause cinema is interesting, obviously, um, because of, of her role in the Senate sort of like slowing down and frankly, you know, gutting legislation that's geared to help out, you know, regular working class Americans. Um, you know, so it's very clear that she's raking in some, some money. Um, but how is that sort of affecting her on the ground? And is, is there a, you know, is the money sort of looking like it's going to be enough to protect her in the long run? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I haven't seen polling so recently, but you know, there, there, there's definitely been polls showing her struggling among Democrats um, like her, her approval is pretty, pretty underwater right now. And in, you know, if you look into the poll, she's also struggling with independence. Um, like, you know, I, I think some people think of like independence as like these, you know, just people who make up their mind all the time, but you know, that's, or, or who don't have any kind of ideology, but that's not really the case, right? It's, it's like independents are generally like left-leaning or right-leaning for mm-hmm. the most part. And I, she's, she's doing very badly with, with independence, but you know, I mean, the other the other thing is, um, there's not a hell of a lot of constituency for uh, like higher drug prices. Like, it, this is this is one of the issues that is that is truly bipartisan. Um, like, in that no no one wants to pay higher drug prices. There is huge majority support for allowing Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices, um, and you know, ob- obviously uh, at a policy level, like. Many, many other countries do this. Pretty, pretty much every other country allows or already does that, right? Like we, we have carved out a special, um, you know, predatory uh, just base for the for the pharmaceutical industry here. Like, you know, the, the House Democrats um, put together a, a study a few months ago showing that like that pharmaceutical companies have ex- have expressly targeted the U.S. for higher drug prices, mm. um, and it's because they can. Mm-hmm. Would you would you mind just like just for somebody who might be watching this and is not really following? Could you put a little bit of meat as to like why having you know the government being able to negotiate drug prices is so important? You know, to keeping the cost down. Yeah, I mean, it's well, you know, Medicare is is just a huge payer. Um, mm-hmm. So if they would like by them negotiating drug prices, it would lower drug prices for everyone in this country. Um, and like, you know, your, your insurance company is not going to want to pay four times what Medicare is paying. They might, they might pay a little more because, you know, there's that kind of agreement between private insurers and, and pharmaceutical companies and hospitals to all, to all get to charge as much money as they want. But, um, but the other thing is actually this, um, the, the, the Medicare prescription drug like measure was designed to allow, uh, private insurance to, to pay the same prices as Medicare. Um, but I, I, you know, I guess I'm not a hundred percent sure if that part was sort of stripped out or actually what, what's, what's been an issue is there's been some question as to whether the, the parliamentarian who I'm sure no one wants to hear about the, the Senate parliamentarian might say that that isn't quite, you know, budget related. If, um, if it's like a private insurance policy, 
mm. paying paying the same amount as Medicare, like that it might be sort of extraneous, but you know, we never really got that far since the legislation just completely stalled. I don't I'm not sure she ever issued her ruling on those issues. Yeah, I think we should move I Let's switch the order a little bit and go to this Fetterman versus Connor Lamb thing. Can you just give folks an outline of who uh, Fetterman and Lamb are in this race uh, before we get into some of the um, behind the scenes stuff? Sure. Um, so Connor Lamb is, uh, you know, sort of centrist, corporatist, uh, maybe moderate Democrat um, in the House. He's won a few uh, elections now. I think he was elected in 2017 or 2018. Um, he was elected in a special, but it's he's in a district that has swung from like Trump to to Biden to Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's 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 a it's a swing district, um, and he you know is sort of the moderate favorite for um, like at least DC moderates favorite for Senate. Uh, John John Fetterman is you know more is considered more progressive. Um, you know he backed Bernie in 2016. Uh, and he is the lieutenant governor in, in Pennsylvania currently. He, he, I think he defeated like a, a sitting lieutenant governor uh, in, the, in, the, in the primary uh, a couple of years ago. So, you know, he, he, and he, and he, I think, had run for Senate some years ago, too. And he's sort of built a statewide presence. Like, I'm, I, I don't think people really appreciated that. But, like, he's done a lot of touring around the state. So that's, you know, anyway, the, the race is... Like Fetterman right now is considered to be leading, um, and and uh, Lamb is sort of disapp- disappointing so far. And just to, for the purposes of uh, uh, for policy positions, um, Fetterman has talked nicely about single payer. What are his? Uh, what's he saying about healthcare now? Yeah, I mean he's making like a pitch for universal health care, though he's not using like the words like single payer and Medicare for all. He he did, you know, sit like some years ago he had been like a pretty strong proponent of Medicare for all. Um and you know, like was like, Why aren't politicians talking about it? kind of thing. Um mm-hmm. he's he's probably running a slightly to the center of where he's been, but he's still considered like a, a single payer supporter. And uh, and nonetheless, uh, we got uh, another group we have to learn about called Pen Progress. Who are they, and uh, what's their message? Sure. So they're a new super PAC. They, I mean, I guess they registered late last year, but they they've been for the last like month and a half. They've been talking about getting involved in in this race. Um, and you know, there's really not much about them. Like their their website is. I mean, honestly, I think they only put up their website last week. Like same with their Facebook and Twitter account. Like they haven't posted, like they haven't posted anything. They don't say who they are. Um, mm. There's very limited information and they have not started spending in the race um, yet. But what they, what they are probably known for at this point is they <laughs> last week um, Politico reported that pen progress has been warning, like has been reaching out to potential donors, basically saying like Fetterman is crushing our guy lamb. Um, like he's up like 30 points on him and like, uh, Lamb and like voters don't really see, uh, see Fetterman as the liberal he is. And like, like, you know, like the dynamics here are not going to change unless we get involved. And they, they started Mm -hmm. testing, um, some, some potential negative attacks too, to say that, you know, if we launch all these highly misleading and negative attacks on, on John Fetterman, he might not be in as good a position as he is now. 
Um, and, you know, several of those attacks were like, we're going to call him a socialist because he backed Bernie in 2016. We're, we're going to call him, we're going to say that he supports a $34 trillion uh, takeover, government takeover of healthcare because he supports single payer. Um, you know, and, and what else? He supports defund the police is what they're going to say. And, you know, his, his campaign has been pretty quick to say that's not true. Um, yeah, sounds you very know, Republican. <laughs> yeah, yeah. These these attacks do sound Republican, um, but they, you know, the the healthcare one industry industry one mm. really piqued my interest because it's the exact kind of crap you hear from healthcare lobbyists, like mm-hmm. it is from Republicans and healthcare lobbyists, um, because obviously, like single payer is not a government takeover of healthcare. It's government takes the place of your private insurance, which. Most people who are on private insurance know that it, you know, is not great, not good. No one likes it. Um, <laughs> and, unless you and, work there. <laughs> yeah. And even then, unless you're like high up, you might not like it either. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they might try to rally you to, to lobby against this stuff. But, you know, you're not like raking in big bucks like as like an administrative clerk in any of these yeah, companies. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and it, a, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I, I was going to say that the thing that we found, um, and it, it was out there actually, like on on Google. Uh, so the the guy who is leading this group, Pen Progress, his name is Eric Smith. He's a former like Obama twenty uh, two thousand eight and twenty twelve consultant. Um, he he runs this uh, communications firm called Seven Letter. It used to be called Blue Engine Message and Media. I don't know if people know who who these people are, but um, anyway, Seven Letter once. He, According to these corporate filings that we found that were pretty readily available, um, Seven Letter works for Cigna and like the, the health insurer of Cigna and, and also some other kind of corporate lobbying groups and, you know, companies like Airmark that are like hmm. food service companies or, uh, so, you know, basically a bunch of big kind of corporate interests. Um, and obviously Cigna has some thoughts on, single payer healthcare or anything in between what we have now and that, right? Like they also oppose like a, you know, they threatened to leave Connecticut over a Connecticut trying to institute a, a very weak state public option, like a mm-hmm. state public health insurance plan, which their threat kind of, kind of killed it a few years ago. But, but Andrew, I mean, uh, you know, apparently this is progressive politics. I mean, this is from, from the piece y'all published in the, the lever, uh, the lever, sorry. Um, this is Eric Smith's response to y'all. It says, I'm a volunteer for this effort because I'm a progressive who believes that maintaining control of the U.S. Senate is critical to the success of the Biden administration. He reject, he rejected the idea that attacking Fetterman could benefit his firm's clients, calling it untrue and inaccurate. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, we we found we found that interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, you just let I, that sit there. You know what I mean. <laughs> well, yeah, one I, note on that uh, is that this alarm, this we need to let, let everybody know how much of a socialist the guy kicking my candidate's ass in this election is. We need to let everyone know how socialist he is because we need to beat Doctor Oz and actually, <laughs> like, is <laughs> in a head-to-head matchup. Uh, is that the case? Does it look uh, Does it look like that? Connor Lamb is the Dr. Oz slayer. You know, it doesn't yet. Um, yeah. According to Penn progress, own polling that Politico obtained, uh, J- John Fetterman has a significantly better lead against, uh, against Dr. Oz, who is yes, a Senate candidate, um, than, than Ben Connor Lamb. Yes. Um, yeah, no, there, there was, there was a lot there to appreciate. Um, yeah, the, I'm a progressive part, uh, <laughs> 
Uh, I mean, <laughs> you know, I was like talking with like another like reporter. I, I know about this. He was saying, you know, like moderates will argue that like we need like Democrats won't hold the Senate if it's Fetterman. And it's like, yeah, they will argue that. But I, I you know, I don't know if I have if I would, you know, ever be convinced of that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, I just wish like, maybe, maybe we're getting to the point. Cause you see occasionally like these, right. Like Madison Cawthorn praising Joe Manchin as a statesman, like this understanding of like moderate quote unquote uh, Democrats are basically just like reactionaries in blue. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, let's, uh, let's, Skip over to the uh, other side of the aisle. Well, not entirely because Joe Manchin, um, but the Koch brothers. Let's talk about the Kochs. Um, and I'm curious, like as a as a, as a reporter um, on this beat, the Koch brothers. Explain um, Charles Koch, the remaining uh, sort of active political member, who they are, and are they sort of like are they sort of a moon type of a dominant uh, dark money force, or are they like sort of the big dipper in a constellation of right wing money? Um, if that's a little bit too confusing, but like, I'm curious, like some people say that Jane Mayer's book, for instance, overemphasized the role of the Koch brothers. And you hear this criticism a lot. And I kind of, I kind of just think it's something to ha- a way to have a criticism. Cause like any text can only focus on like a certain amount of things. Um, but yeah. I'm curious about the Koch brothers uh, generally, and then uh, tell us what they're up to in West Virginia. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, like, okay, like, yes, there are some other conservative funders who are, uh, I guess, actually spreading the money around in a significant way. But but the Kochs, Charles Koch, David Koch, who, who died a few years ago, um, they, they really kind of, I mean, you know, they, they seeded so many of the conservative groups we see right now. Um, and... Like in 2010, like they financed the Tea Party movement pretty, pretty mm-hmm. single handedly, or maybe not single handedly, but they had a very big, big effect on that. Um, and you know, they they fund, I mean, you know, they fund hyper conservative like advocacy groups. They fund universities, like they fund, and they fund like university programs, like, mm-hmm. uh, like you know, like Mercatus, like the big, like economics, like long economics program at, at George Mason university. Like, yeah, they, 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 they're influential. Um, and they, they run, they also run like their own kind of advocacy groups beyond just financing this sphere of, uh, conservative advocacy. They, you know, Americans for, for prosperity is a very big election spender. Um, and that's, that's like, that's theirs. Um, you know, they, they have this group called stand together, that has that finances both Americans for Prosperity and a million other conservative groups, um, and so like you know I think some so you, you'll sometimes see like pundits be like like conservative pundits be like oh like everyone like kind of mocking the idea that like Charles Koch controls the world I'm like okay maybe he doesn't control the world but he definitely finances their groups most of the time mm-hmm. right like so it's yeah I, I mean. There is a point to what they're saying, but it's not, it's not like entirely legit either. Yeah. It's like, it's one thing to make that criticism and say, let's talk more about like the Scafee Foundation and like those other groups yeah. versus let's hand wave away the uh, effective influence of like fossil fuel uh, oligarchs and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so, okay. Like Charles Koch, they, they host, his network hosts like this big conference every year for like other conservative donors where like they're all making decisions about who to give money to. 
Mm. Like, right. you know, they, 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 they don't fund everything. Like there are other financiers here, but like often like the, <laughs> the Coke network, like kind of helps organize it. It coordinates uh, it. Okay. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And like, you know, they lobby at the state level, the federal level, like they, they have a lot of, they have a lot of influence and okay. So do you want to, should we talk about this story then? Yeah. 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 That, that'd be up. helpful. Yeah. So, okay. So the story that we reported on them is that, um, there's this Virginia, uh, West Virginia, like uh, attorney general is trying to overturn basically the EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gases, um, saying that it's not in the EPA's authority under the Clean Air Act. And yeah, we found we just looked through, you know, Sheldon Whitehouse, the senator uh, from Rhode Island, has been really big on this, like talking about like this kind of amicus brief, like pipeline where like conservative groups or, or the, the Cokes are financing these conservative groups that then file uh, like legal briefs in these Supreme court cases and, and down the line too, where they then um, are, are making basically making the like intellectual case for, for overturning, you know, every, every regulation you can think of. And that's, I mean, that's what we've seen here. And, you know, we'd reported this a few months back too, or maybe it was sometime last year, like, Charles Koch has recently, you know, he's best known for being in the oil and gas industry, but he he also has, during the pandemic, started buying up a whole or starting started investing in real estate, like residential real estate, mm. you know, like single family home companies, actually, in particular. Um, and he was funding these conservative groups that were, you know, also suing to overturn the the COVID eviction ban, the, the, the federal eviction medito- uh, moratorium. So... It's something you kind of see over and over again. You know, you look up, you're like, who are these who are these groups involved in these briefs? Or like who are filing these briefs in this in the Supreme Court case? And you just, you know, put you just Google them, you're like, oh, Coke funded, Coke funded, Coke funded. And it's it's you know, sometimes like you might see like ten thousand dollars, like, okay, in that in that in that world, this in this world, that is not real money, right? In the in the conservative or in the nonprofit world, like ten thousand dollars isn't terribly meaningful. But like sometimes it's a million dollars a year, and it's like okay, that's mm-hmm. that that's half the organization, or more, and that's 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 what we saw with a bunch of these groups is that they were that they've given millions of dollars to some of them. And I mean, it, I'm sure most of our listeners and certainly people who are reading y'all's work uh, are, are familiar with this. But it is just worth noting that like a lot of times when people talk about money and politics. You know, there's a kind of fixation on congressional donations, and obviously that matters a lot. Um, but if, you know, the past few years have taught you, us anything is that the right wing is very, very committed right now um, to using, you know, the legal sphere um, to also, you know, pursue their kind of policy goals. Um, and, and that is can be just as damaging as, you know, giving a donation to a kind of right wing congressional candidate that puts them over the top. I mean, creating a kind of legal apparatus that can undermine uh, you know, decisions of, of democratically elected governments is, is just as worrying, if not more worrying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the outside groups here are like the real money more often than not, right? Like people people will see they're like, okay, all these companies donated to these lawmakers who voted to overturn the election, right? Like that's that's a story, but like the real story in all of that is always going to be like, okay, the House GOP, the House Republicans have. A, a dark money arm and, and a super PAC. And those groups can, can accept, you know, they're, they're not bound by any kind of like contribution limit, right? Like there's like a $2,900 
contribution limit for a political campaign for for or for federal candidates for office, um, at least on for, from individuals. But you know, you can give a million dollars to a super PAC backing that candidate. Like you, 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 you can get a lot more bang for your buck through through outside groups, or or at least you can put a lot more money in. Um, and that's that's you know that's we try to follow that money as much as we can because it's 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 just to us it's it's it it is obvious that's where the influence is. And, and you know this also creates a whole ecosystem and, and, and relationships too. I mean, you know, uh, obviously a lot of lawmakers, uh, people who run for office later, are people in the law profession. And you know, if your entire life, you know, law school, post law school, you're sort of inundated with these kind of conservative money groups. Again, even if it's not the same as directly funding a group or a congressional candidate or anything like that, you know, oh well, this is these are the kind of people. If I spend time with them, if I associate myself with them, then I'll be, you know, sort of rolling in it, especially, and it's really great, especially if you have very much, you know, floating personal political positions. Um, but that really creates an apparatus um, that can pull in a lot of younger people to be, you know, the next generation of firebrands in, in the conservative movement, too. I mean, this is like, this is not an accident. They're not just throwing money at the wall. They understand that this gets results um, in the long term, too. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, Turning Point USA is like probably is a great example of that. That's mm-hmm. that's a group, and that that's a group that's like grown over the last few years. Um, and you know, I guess for people who don't know who they are, and maybe some, maybe a lot of people who do know who they are because they're because they're so goofy. But like it's it's like a it's like a conservatives on campus group, um, mm-hmm. and it's and it has like they organize nationally. They they throw these big rager conferences. And I'm sure they're, I mean, I'm sure Rager is uh, overselling it. I'm sure I'm overselling it because I've been to CPAC several times and it is horrible. And but, but everyone, everyone there is, is a the child. Is the food good at least? I don't know. No, 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 no. It's, everyone there is a child and like has never been kissed. And that's fine. It's fine. Like, uh, but like Turning, Turning Point USA is like the teen, the, the adult teen version of that, right? The young adult <laughs> yeah. version. And uh, yeah, they, they get a lot of money from, like for instance, uh, Le- Leonard Leo runs this mm. dark money network. He was Trump's uh, ju- top judicial advisor, and he is a longtime executive at the the Federalist Society, which is like a conservative lawyers network. If you look up the Federalist Society, like every every member of the Trump administration is a FedSoc member. Like you know, it's not just judges; it's like every every conservative lawyer. Um, Le- Leonard Leo also runs these this like side dark money network that helped helped pack the court, right? It helped install mm-hmm. all these conservative justices. They also give money to Turning Point USA. They give like millions of dollars every year to him. Um, and I, I think that he's received some Coke money too. Like it's, it's, or by he, I mean like Charlie Kirk, the guy who runs Turning Point USA. <laughs> um, so yeah. Okay. No, that's great. I mean, I, I feel, yeah, like there's some fracking um, stuff buying Kirk, I know, and that, that sort of stuff. Um, I, I want to yeah. get um, – just lay out the stakes for this attack on the EPA's authority um, mm-hmm. to regulate this stuff because I think I think this is right, but correct me if I'm wrong, but this is about like a, a case to do with Chevron and what's known as like Chevron deference, basically that like government bureaucracies are allowed to say like, hey, this is a pollutant. Uh, we can regulate that as opposed to – basically making Congress uh, go uh, over it. Is that basically it? Well, so the Clean Air Act, like, allows Congress to, or, or, sorry, allows the EPA to regulate, like, pollutants, like, stuff that, like, pollutes the air. And what what, what these conservative groups are saying is that, like, okay, that's too broad. Like, we, we basically need, like, a new, 
law every every time there's a new pollutant the government wants to regulate. Instead of saying we want to regulate greenhouse gases, you know, the, instead of the EPA saying that, we're actually going to have to. <laughs> The, the the Congress is going to have to send them a bill saying you can regulate carbon emissions, you know, and, and obviously the context here is um, we're all going to die, right? Like we, <laughs> under that scenario, right? Like we only, we have like limited time to be making big, big changes to, yeah. uh, to, to in how we, you know, use energy. Um, and, that, that this kind of you know rule it would it would be catastrophic and it wouldn't only affect like climate either it would affect like the the whole federal like agency's ability to mm-hmm. regulate and do the job that they're supposed to be doing yeah it's a real like libertarian uh, dr- uh wet dream <laughs> yeah uh, sort of yeah Uh, Well, uh, Andrew, thanks. Uh, You can check in uh, with uh, Andrew over at the uh, uh, lever news at levernews.com. And uh, yeah, give us a plug for another plug for lever news. Yeah. uh, So it is a reader funded investigative news site. Uh, We're covering money and influence and yeah, we could definitely use your support. Uh, We rely on readers and uh, you know, we're, we're actually, we've, we've been pretty successful so far. We're growing. We're hoping to launch some new new products soon. Right now, it's you know a newsletter you get in your inbox every day, but we're hoping to be adding new products soon and and more stuff. Have you thought about doing like a fake right wing outlet to try to soak up a whole bunch of cash <laughs> and then just like shovel it to like your actual uh, good good work that you do? Because me and David could maybe like put on some like uh, MAGA hats and try to make you a fake. Yeah, yeah. Officially speaking, <laughs> no, I have not. <laughs> okay, good. All right. <laughs> Andrew Perez, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's Andrew Perez uh, DC at Andrew Perez DC on Twitter. Uh, go follow him, folks. Uh, thank you. All right, folks. This is good talking to Andrew. Uh, very prolific. I mean, pretty much everybody over at the Daily Poster is uh, extremely prolific. But Andrew uh, really does pump out a lot of uh, interesting little uh, articles uh, over there. So. I mean, I definitely appreciate somebody who's willing to sort of comb through um, financial filings and stuff for the rest of us. It's a great service. Yeah, and I mean that what I, I say about like that sort of reporting. Uh, capitalism is not incentivized to just do that because it's good mm-hmm. for public service, right? Uh, you, If you look at charts, if you want to get uh, doom and gloom and uh, see something that's sort of, you know, as is, is, uh, uh, horrifying as like climate reports, look at how fast uh, reporting news jobs are going down and how high uh, marketing jobs are going up. So you want to look at the information that capitalism is incentivized to give you. It's not what uh, levernews.com is, uh, is, is putting out there. So, uh, yes, it is David Sirota's organization. Uh, and uh, we should get uh, David on, uh, actually, as well, um, once he's back from the Oscars uh, yeah. and all the Hollywood stuff. <laughs> uh, that would be wonderful. Um, we're going to get to this story from uh, South Dakota in a second. But, I don't know, something happened when we were on break that I, I figured might be worth doing a plug real quick. Um, to a former show that we've uh, a show oh. that we did recently made public. It was a premium show that we released. Um, but uh, right here, uh, there's just a little bit of a news peg for uh, the St. Louis Commune and the Veiled Profit Ball. 
which I felt is worth uh, re-upping for folks. So Sarah Sirota notes for The Intercept, a new and heiress of the Anheuser-Busch beer fortune was crowned queen at the notoriously racist and elitist St. Louis Veiled Profit Ball in 1977. Now Trudy Bush is running to be Democrats, a nominee for Missouri's Senate seat. Um, it's an interesting uh, story there that you should definitely check out at The Intercept. Um, but I just figured it's worth, uh, you know, plugging this again because, you know, we had a conversation with historian and uh, former lawyer Mark Kruger, um, who broke down this really historic moment that a lot of folks uh, aren't familiar with, uh, which was um, during the Great Railroad Strike in 1877, communists and workers, uh, you know, got together and they took over the city of St. Louis and they held it for something near like two weeks, um, doing everything, including running city services to uh, helping the mail uh, get there on time. Yeah. I mean, the, the note about the mail is so interesting to me because one, it's like it's a it's a great show of, yes, I can do uh, you can do this stuff, like keep mail functioning. But also they had to do it so uh, the government couldn't come in and crush them for in, uh, interfering with the mail. Well, it's just showing how to be a practical revolutionary, basically. <laughs> Make sure that exactly. people know things are going to get better uh, under workers' control. Um, and, you know, for people uh, who uh, aren't familiar, basically the year after 1878, uh, the Veiled Profit Parade and the Veiled Profit Ball started, uh, which were explicitly meant um, as a gathering of the rich and powerful in that area uh, to intimidate and suppress and basically break working class solidarity. You know, and that's a tradition that continues uh, all the way to today. Um, so just a good reminder that, you know, the, one, the history of American um, labor, the American labor movement is rich. The American socialist movement is, you know, is, is been a part of this country for a very, very long time. It's not some kind of foreign importation as much as people like James Lindsay make it out to be. Um, and lastly, you know, a lot of these traditions and uh, mores and, and the culture of, of rich people very, very much um, originates um, from trying to put down and break uh, the socialist threat um, to their uh, to their uh, you know regime of exploitation here. Um, so just always the multicultural. I just want to say the multicultural socialist threat because you know yeah. you say uh, it is domestic here, but only domestic in, here in the way that we are, like in the sense of uh, came from all over the world mm-hmm. uh, and settled here, right? And very interesting stuff about. Uh, uh, recently freed uh, former slaves um, and people speaking in uh, different types of European languages, all at the same sort of commune. Um, and, uh, you know, you have to have this basically like clan prom um, with this veiled prophets uh, thing uh, to sort of reimpose a type of order because and one of the things the commune sort of bargained away early on that kind of took the wind out of it, if, if memory serves, was the um, nightly parades. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just interesting as like a way to impose sort of like, um, you know, to demonstrate the will of the people. Um, and yeah, it's very interesting stuff. And yeah, like that recently, what's her name? Uh, did you say it already? The actress that got Ellie uh, Kemper. Caught. Ellie Kemper. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, th- this stuff interest- is very interesting. I mean, Hobsbawm's got that book, Inventing Tradition, uh, right? And, like, this is a, a classic case in how it- tradition is invented and the ones that are sort of maintained by the upper classes has a purpose. 
No, I mean, no, no doubt about it. And I mean, obviously this is like people who are regular watchers know we, we cover this a lot, but like, you know, I've been really coming through this book, Grassroots Socials and Radical Movements in the Southwest, 1895, 1943. Absolutely fascinating. Um, text and uh, you know it, it just is truly amazing how rich of a of a history um, we have here that really has affected a lot of the 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 big moments that you learn about in school, uh, but all the kind of subtext and, and the prelude is always ignored, um, you know, very much to try to make it seem like you know there never was a really strong labor movement in this country because we got along so well with our bosses and there's some flare ups here or there but you know labor peace uh was the true american tradition uh, when nothing could be further from the truth so um yep. it's always good to look into to your local history because you'll be surprised you'll find a lot more than you think yeah and i mean that really is like a left reckoning thing is become a steward of your local history like I mean, as far as like, how do you communicate with people in your community? Like that stuff is going to be interesting to them because they're in the same place you are. <laughs> right. And, and I mean, look, if they're a capitalist, it might be interesting for a different reason, uh, but they probably listen to what you have to say about like how labor or whatever struggle um, punched them back in the face. Uh, but it happens and you should know about it. Absolutely. Um, well, y'all, um, before, we have one more segment before we go to the post game, but just want to re-up. Um, you know, join us over there at patreon.com slash left reckoning. Uh, we appreciate everyone's support. It really helps us grow and be able to cover more of this. I mean, you know, the hope would be that we'd be able to start being able to do some more on-site stuff in the future and being able to tell some of these stories because I think it's desperately needed. Um, you know, if you sign up now, patreon.com slash left reckoning, it's just five bucks to support the work we do here. You'll get access to our bonus episode on Sunday. Um, and then you'll get access to the post game where you'll be able to leave us a voicemail, ask us questions about whatever, you know, you're interested in, or just tell us something, um, about what's going on in your community. It's always a uh, really great to hear from folks. And, um, Matt and I will also be taking a deep dive into how a couple of, uh, health bros rediscovered, uh, the pretty nasty uh, colonialist tradition of, uh, 19th century racist uh, anthropology. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, it's really, those guys have really rubbed me the wrong way, actually. I mean, it's, it's absolutely disgusting and it's also hilarious just how like willingly they fall into all of the old tropes. Um, from, you know, they even use the term modern humans at one point to describe themselves <laughs> as in opposition to people. Um, anyways, oh, we'll take a deep dive and that'll be a lot of fun. Um, but before we get to that, um, Matt, we have a we have a really interesting and important story out of uh, South Dakota um, here, um, out of uh, Rapid City, if I recall correctly. Um, would you like me to set it up? Yeah, we we have it right here. Um, I mean, if you want to take us through the title, I can give people the kind of background about the incident. Yeah, so NDN Collective, uh, who's also been organizing some of the uh, response to this incident, uh, has, has this article here: Tribal leaders of the Ocheti Shakowe. As pronounced, deliver notice of trespass and eviction notice to Grand Gateway Hotel. Uh, setting Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868, five tribal leaders of the Ocheti Shakowe, uh, the seven council fires of, in parentheses, the seven council fires of the Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota nations, led a march uh, on Saturday in Rapid City, delivering a notice of trespass and posting it on the door of the Grand Gateway Hotel. Now, um, before like Joe Rogan gets involved and says, oh, this is them turning against all white people. What's going on here? Um, uh, do you want to explain that part? David? Yeah, because I mean, it's just a nasty story that is uh, unfortunately not very unique. Um, but in uh, Rapid City, uh, there is a hotel um, that has a sports bar in it. 
um, where there was a, you know, an incident, you know, serious enough. Um, somebody got shot. Um, Important point to make here, which is that uh, because so much of what, what we talk about with regards to problems with society is driven by political campaigns, mm-hmm. um, we, there's this idea suggest um, created in people's minds that crime is only rising in places like Chicago and New York City and Los Angeles. Actually, it's pretty much everywhere. Omaha, uh, um, right? Like a lot of uh, pretty much everywhere. And it's because, uh, surprise, there's a pandemic going on. And we're like, what have we been talking about all night? We're we're putting the force to people when we should be uh, meeting their needs instead. But we need to drive them back into the workplace. So, of course, you're going to have a whole bunch of strife, right? Like we've basically left people to fend for themselves, except for a nice sizable check relatively like what this country does uh, here or there. Like, like, and, and also look not to endorse any sort of like Bloombergian gun control stuff. Guns don't make places safer. (laughs) They just don't. Mm. And, uh, and so this is the problems that are frankly like endemic to America um, that we have to deal with. And, uh, and so like that, that's a point that needs to be made is violence, um, uh, is going up everywhere. Well, here's how not to deal with it. Um, <laughs> yeah. so this hotel here, and this is, uh, from a, a piece in, um, HuffPost, South Dakota tribal leaders say hotel banning native Americans is trespassing by um, Andre Ellington. And let's just get to the, you know, to the main bit here. Um, so there was a, a shooting that happens, um, and, uh, the, this uh, bar owner goes out on Facebook and also sent a bunch of people emails um, <laughs> um, as well, uh, going back to the, the beginning of the, the episode. Um, and it's Connie Uru, um, Uri. I hope I'm saying that right, but I don't care too much. Uri, yeah, that's, um, a, that's a very uh, Dakota name, white person name. <laughs> but here's their, here's their Facebook post. Due to the killing that took place on the Grand Gateway at the Grand Gateway Hotel on March 19th at 4 a.m., um, plus all the vandalism we have had since the mayor and police department are working with the nonprofit organization, dark money. What are they, you know, who are they talking about there? Um, I, again, I, I will say I'm no expert as to what's going on, um, local politics there, but I, I would be curious, uh, to see, you know, if, uh, you know, the mayor and the government in, in that city is particularly radical leftists. Uh, I'd be, I'd no, be a bit surprised. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, typically they probably have like a, genuine like uh or, a, or like a like sort of public sensitivity to native folks like this is mayor uh steve allender uh you know coming say pointing this out right now i mean i don't know i haven't seen what the suggestion of the non-profit organization nobody knows from everything i've read is um yeah exactly. which is about I'm, fair I'm game for you know unhinged facebook rants um i know that's that's the interesting thing is like where but and and the only where other place i've heard that is in all the stuff for uh Kintaji brown jackson uh and the confirmation hearings is they've said like she's got dark money so i don't know if they she's just decided to use that attack or but whatever, right? Like ridiculous that, that because because you know what she can't say because she can't say the mayor defunded the police because all these places where violence is going up that hadn't happened any place. Yeah. Anyway, so um, so here's uh, the bit. That, know, yeah, here's the bit. Yeah, I mean, here's the bit. Um, you know that that rightfully has gotten them into hot water. We will no longer allow any Native American on property or in Cheer Sports Bar. Natives killing natives. Ranchers and travelers will receive a very special rate of $59 a night, uh, book direct. Um, and the mayor called them out, um, and as of many other people in the, in the community. Um, 
for it. I mean, you know, and that's just like a rich cultural historical, te- you know, comment, frankly. Um, one, just explicit racism against, uh, you know, native people. Um, and two, trying to like incentivize, you know, um, you know, the image that they're trying to, to play into, you know, if like a white rancher is, is more than welcome to come and stay there and even save a little bit of money doing so uh, while they will, uh, you know, argue that they're going to bar Native Americans from the property. And we have this um, this video here and, and we could talk a little bit about the response, but um, it just should be noted that one, there is an active lawsuit against the hotel. And um, while the son of, of this uh, uh, um hotel owner has said nobody has actually been denied. She, you know, got upset and made a mistake. Um, that is not the case. That is not what we're hearing from people on the ground. Um, I believe the Indian collective also has gotten audio, um, of, of native people basically being told that they're not allowed to book, um, at the hotel. Um, but the response here has been uh, pretty swift and impressive. I must say. So that is, uh, you know, people there serving eviction notice to the hotel um, because it, um, they argue, it, the hotel is now in violation of uh, treaties uh, with the Great Sioux Nation um, for denying uh, Native people access uh, to the hotel. I mean, I think that's, uh, I, I consider that justice and uh, yeah, sounds great to me. The treaty, this is from the, the HuffPost piece. Um the treaty with the Sioux, April 29th, 1868. The treaty states that no white person or person shall be permitted to settle upon or occupy any portion of the land north of the North uh, Platte River um, or east of the summits of the Bighorn Mountains or without the consent of the Indians first had and ap- obtained to pass through the same. The Great Sioux Nation is yeah, instructing I mean- the Grand Gateway Hotel to evacuate immediately. <laughs> yeah, like all these treaties, like basically a, a way to like figure out how to get the sort of infrastructure of settlement uh, protected uh, in ways that were, yeah, like negotiated advantageously for the U.S. Uh, in its own right. And then also not honored by the U.S. despite that, those, those advantageous uh, negotiating position, uh, uh, sort of postures. So um, I think that's great. I think there should be um, more uh, honoring of those sorts of uh, and invoking as I mean, native folks do. I'm not. I don't need to tell them to invoke treaties uh, anymore. But a, a great understanding of what it actually means, and actually how it's not just some uh, relic of history, and people mm-hmm. aren't on some sort of like Nick Cage s uh, like um, <laughs> journey into historical documents. Like this stuff should matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it should be made to matter, and uh, it can be made to matter in our court system um, if there's a you know a, a will um, a people's will that uh, you know. Uh, is behind it. So yeah, that's great. Absolutely. We need much more of it. Yeah. Well, y'all, um, this has been a, um, a very jam packed, uh, opening show, but we got a hell of a lot more in the post game. Join us at patreon.com slash left reckoning. Um, we'll see you, I think promptly, uh, this time at, uh, at a nine central for the post game. So leave us some voicemails in the meantime, and, uh, we'll see y'all in about half an hour. Yeah, check out the voicemails. Look at that. Uh, 1-940-289-7234. 940-289-7234. All right, see you all soon. See you, folks.